Welcome to HEQ&A, the podcast of History of Education Quarterly. I'm your host, HEQ co-editor Jack Schneider. Every few weeks, we'll dive into recent work from the journal, asking authors how their projects challenge or extend what we know about a topic, exploring what's interesting and surprising about it, and then taking a step back to consider broader implications. In the second half of the show, we turn our sights to teaching, so if you're an educator, make sure to stick around until the end. And now, let's hear from one of our authors. Okay, my name is Wade Morris. I teach high school history at International School in Moshi, Tanzania, called UWC East Africa. My article has nothing to do with East Africa. It's about Colorado, and it's entitled The Eye of the Juvenile Court, Report Cards, Juvenile Corrections, and a Colorado Street Kid, 1900-1920. My article is very much an extension of the work of Tamara Myers, Julia Grant, Tracy Steffs. These are historians that examined early juvenile correction systems in the United States, so late 1800s, early 1900s. And all of these historians talked about how difficult it was for middle-class progressives to corral street kids into public schools. And so the main question I'm asking is, what were the mechanics of how those progressives did that corralling? So I wanted to dig as deep as possible into that question. And then the second question was whether or not I could center the narrative of the article around the student's perspective. So not around the the progressive middle-class adults who organized juvenile corrections, but the street kids who were on the receiving end of that. And in this sense, the article is extending the work of William Bush, Terry Eva Ezjapong, and Miroslava Garcia Chavez. Essentially, my argument is that report cards, teacher-written report cards, were the linchpin of the entire juvenile correction system. And by report cards, I mean the periodic communication from a school to a guardian about a student's deportment, academic standing, and truancy, and so uh, attendance. And what I found was across the country, uh, in newspapers and correspondence between judges, school principals, and state archives that saved these teacher-written reports. So across the country, different juvenile courts were adopting this system uh, as a cheap method for keeping watch and surveillance over students that were on probation. You can see it in Chicago, New York City, Denver, Buffalo, Cleveland, Idaho, Alabama, and Los Angeles. And this this represents a major expansion of the power of this idea of a teacher-written report card. So report cards were born in the 1830s and 1840s during the common school movement as a way for teachers to try to co-opt the support of parents. Report cards expanded in the 1870s and 1880s with the expansion of public schools and the bureaucratization of public schools. Uh, So in the late 19th century, superintendents started to mandate their use as a way of keeping track over what teachers were doing. And then in the early 20th century, you now see report cards have the literal literal ability to dictate a child's freedom or incarceration. This was of concern at the time for a lot of people who were involved in the juvenile correction. So people in the 19-teens, different judges and probation officers noted how teachers were abusing this power, how they developed certain prejudices against certain students, and how sometimes they used that power to try to force obedience in the classroom. And so even in the first decade of the system being born, the system caused some concern. 
I became really interested in this project when I found a protagonist around which to base this narrative. And I wanted to focus around the experiences of a child who went through the process of experiencing these juvenile corrections and the emphasis on teacher written reports. And I stumbled on the story of a, a child or a teenager in Colorado named Andrew Monroe. I chose Colorado because Colorado had an early juvenile court that relied on teacher written reports for surveillance. And I set it on, settled on Andrew's story, and Andrew Monroe is a pseudonym, because his story is really well documented in local newspapers, very gossipy local newspapers that were willing to talk about the, the legal troubles of children. And I also use census data, draft cards, county court records, local historical societies were really helpful. And the state of Colorado was helpful. Uh, the state of Colorado unsealed Andrew's court records in exchange for the use of a pseudonym. So Andrew Monroe is not his real name. So essentially, who was Andrew Monroe? Andrew was from a family that wandered from town to town in Colorado, and uh, his father struggled to start a photography business in a, in a variety of towns. Eventually, they settled in a town called Glenwood Springs, which is on the western slope of Colorado, kind of a resort town. And his father in 1903 abandoned the family uh, when his photography studio went bankrupt. Local newspapers also reported on the legal problems that, that young Andrew got involved with, that he was skipping school, uh, that he was stealing. Andrew's mother eventually abandoned him to join the circus. So Andrew was uh, raised for the last few years by a foster family. At the age of 12, Andrew violated uh, his probation by skipping school and stealing a handcart uh, on the railroad tracks. And it was the teacher written reports that documented this. And it was the teacher written reports that ultimately led the judge to conclude that Andrew should be sent to the Colorado state reform school uh, called the Boys Industrial School. Uh, by the time Andrew arrived, he was just 12 years old. He weighed 82 pounds. And the documents at the school uh, mentioned that he had scars all over his body, implying that it was at the hands of the abuse of adults. So the state industrial school, when uh, Andrew arrived in, in 1906, uh, was very typical uh, at the time. Each state by the early 20th century, most states by the early 20th century, had publicly funded uh, reform schools that emphasized hard work through like military discipline. Uh, half the day was spent doing manual labor and the other half was, of the day was spent in academic classrooms. And the report card once again was essential to maintaining control at these, these reform schools. The report cards survive, Andrew, Andrew Monroe's report cards survive from the state industrial school and they document his periodic infractions, his refusal to work, his low grades and his periodic attempts at escape. And these report cards were submitted to the parole board each month. And essentially, each negative report card that Andrew received added another month to his sentence. And it looks like by the early 19 teens that Andrew was probably going to have to stay at the industrial school until he turned 21. However, at the age of 16, Andrew escaped and traveled hundreds of miles away from the industrial school across the Great Plains and finally made it to Des Moines, Iowa. And it was in Des Moines that he started to turn his life around. He got a job at a leather glove factory. He moved into uh, middle management. He took night classes and he married and had a child all before he turned the age of 19. And it's at this point, right after Andrew, the birth of Andrew's son, that the state of Colorado discovered his whereabouts. And the local business community in Des Moines 
rallied around Andrew and lobbied the governor of Colorado to pardon the 18-year-old Andrew. The Des Moines Press labeled Andrew the Jean Valjean of Colorado at this point, and with great fanfare, the, go- the governor of Colorado acquiesced and did indeed pardon Andrew, Andrew and, and proclaimed Andrew a great success story uh, about how he could turn his life around. Okay, just a few months after Andrew was pardoned, however, Andrew's life fell apart. He started to stay out late drinking. Uh, At one point, he came home and assaulted his wife. He was arrested for battery. And then once he was released from jail, he was rearrested two more times before the age of 21, eventually spending several years in Nebraska for stealing a car. By the 1930s, Andrew had already uh, had abandoned at least two more wives and at least three more children. Uh, In the 1940s, Andrew ended up in Texas, where he was working on the Gulf Coast on uh, shipping docks. In the 1960s, uh, when Andrew was in his seventh decade of life, he moved back to Colorado and where he retired. But in 1971, he died penniless. Uh, Cemetery records show that uh, Andrew didn't have enough money for a headstone. He's buried in an unmarked grave and no friends and family uh, attended his funeral. The broader implications of a microhistory like this are kind of tricky. So going back to Andrew's story, in 1917, Andrew tried to find his own broader implications. And so he was still a teenager at this point, but he's starting to get into legal trouble. And he told a local uh, reporter that the system uh, and, insist- and the system of surveillance ruined his life. And that once uh, somebody like Andrew had been in the system, that the society would always remind him of his mistakes as a youth. And so Andrew went to his, I think Andrew went to his grave thinking that his life was ruined by the surveillance state, which again is kind of a metaphor for these report cards. I think, however, that this micro history is a a bit more complicated. I don't think uh, report cards ruined Andrew's life. I think that Andrew was given second and third chances as a juvenile, but also as an adult. I think Andrew's story is complicated by the fact that he experienced trauma as a child. He likely had addiction problems as adults. As an adult, he he was clearly abandoned by both parents. So Andrew is a complicated person uh, like most humans are. So in terms of the broader implications of this microhistory, I think it helps remind us of the messiness of ordinary individual lives. And that through studying the drama of somebody like Andrew, we can be reminded of how difficult it is and how complicated it is for humans to navigate the Foucauldian surveillance state, which I argue is embodied by school report cards. The second half of the show is dedicated to thinking about teaching. We ask authors to put on their guest lecturer hats and take students into the weeds. What should they pay attention to, methodologically speaking? What else should they be reading if they want to take a deep dive into the historiography? And where are their opportunities for further research? So if I were a guest lecturer in your lecture hall, I wouldn't lecture. Instead, what I would do is try to teach this uh, university seminar like I would teach my high school class, and I would divide the students up into groups of two or three, and I would sign each group of students a secondary source, and the secondary source would be short, 
maybe a page, maybe just a few paragraphs, and it would be about juvenile corrections. And it would be a passage from the historians we've mentioned, Julia Grant, Tamara uh, Myers, Tracy Steffs, maybe also big names like Michael Katz or Anthony Platt. And I would combine these secondary sources with one specific primary source, because that's all you have time for, for one class. And the primary sources could be these report cards, maybe just one or two. It could be also be the parole board meeting records that I uncovered. It might be a contemporaneous article either for or critical of these early juvenile correction systems, or it also could be a student newspaper article from uh, these reform schools. Typically these, these reform schools had their own newspapers, their own like high school newspapers. So I'd assign these secondary sources. I would ask the students to, to then read the primary sources. I would ask the students to try to evaluate the, the value and limitations of the primary sources, to think about who the intended audience is, to think about how the author's perspective impacts what they say. And then I would do what this podcast does. I would ask the students the same question the podcast asked, which is how did the primary source extend or complicate the main idea of the secondary source. And then I would ask students to write a paragraph or two about that and turn it in. And then we would have the problem of what to do with those paragraphs. We would probably have to grade them and I would talk about them the next class. I would say that there's so, if I'm talking to a graduate student, I think I would really encourage the graduate student to start to contact state archives and state governments to see if the state governments would be willing to unseal the records of reform schools and juvenile courts, because it is a treasure trove of intense, dramatic stories. And I think that there's really some interesting dissertations and books that could be written about this to not only dig into micro histories, but to look at the aggregated data of what the impact, the longitudinal impact was of these juvenile correction systems and these reform schools on these children and what they actually, what happened with their lives. So I'm really looking forward to the next brilliant young historian of education who can dedicate several decades of their life to doing that. It would be a really interesting project. To learn more, check out History of Education Quarterly online. The journal is published by Cambridge University Press and it's carried by most academic libraries. You should also be sure to follow HEQ's Twitter handle, at HistEdQuarterly, which regularly sends out free, read-only versions of articles, and the show's Twitter handle, at HEQ&A. And don't forget, subscribe to the show so you don't miss forthcoming episodes. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. HEQ&A is produced at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Our producer is Jennifer Berkshire, and our theme music is by Ryan Shaw. I'm Jack Schneider. Thanks for joining us.